Please open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21. Let's pray as we, uh, once again, ask the Lord to guide us. Father, once again, we come to you today in prayer, in Jesus' name, because in ourselves we have no right to come to the throne of Almighty God. But because of Jesus and His sacrifice on our behalf, And you're working faith within us to believe Him. We now have access to the throne of God. We come to you now. Ask that you will cause your Holy Spirit to move in our midst. As we look at your word, God, would you powerfully, powerfully work to convince us of the truth. Stir within our hearts a response Lord, of gratitude, of faith, trust in you. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together to open your word. Do a mighty work, Lord. We'll thank you. Amen. Well, in our expedition, we've now covered three books, right? Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. Again, in Genesis, um, and, and Tim, if you'll put that up there, thank you. In Genesis, we see that uh, the book of Genesis is the beginnings, right, of all things. And one of my, let me just say this, one of my goals and desires is that when we're done with this expedition, uh, that you will be able to at least remember these charts. In your head, just remember the concepts. Um, and that's why we're going over them every week, to uh, be a constant reminder. But in Genesis, we see it's, it's the, the beginnings of all things. And in the first 11 chapters, we have these four key events. The creation, the fall, the flood, and then the nations. And in the last section, 12 through 50, we've got these four key individuals. And we can follow uh, the progression of the book of Genesis with these things. And so from chapter 12, we're introduced to Abraham. We see his life. We see the things that God was doing in his life and the covenant he made with Abraham. And then his son Isaac. And then his son Jacob. And then Jacob's favorite son, Joseph. And we see that story at the end of Genesis about Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers and how God took what was intended for evil and intended it for good. Because it was through Joseph being then elevated from prison in, in Egypt to second only to Pharaoh. And that through his wisdom that God had given him, he was able to spare his own family from famine as well as the people in Egypt. Well, then we come to the book of Exodus. And we see that Exodus comes on the heels of, of Genesis where at the end uh, of, of Genesis, we have the 70 uh, people from Jacob's family coming down to Egypt. And that's where Exodus picks up. And then from there, the entire the nation, that family grows to over 2 million people. And then God delivers them. And so we have uh, the redemption of Israel in those first 18 chapters where we see uh, God delivers them from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And he does so through these 10 plagues. And the tenth plague, of course, was the death of the firstborn. And it was there that God established the Passover. And then from there, he brought them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. And he brought them to the, the base of Mount Sinai, where he gave them the Ten Commandments and the instructions in the uh, uh, tabernacle. And so you've got the, the redemption of Israel. You've got the revelation to Israel. You've got the deliverance from bondage, and then you've got directions in worship. Ten plagues, and then the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and so you've got the historical piece, and you've got instructional piece. And then at the end of that time, we now move to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus only covers one month of a period of time, in, uh, as far as time goes, because it's all instructional. 
There's no narrative, really very little narrative, in the whole book of Leviticus. It's about the offerings and the feasts. The first uh, section is about sacrifice, and we see those five offerings that we talked about last time. And the second section is sanctification. The seven feasts are highlighted in that section. Now, obviously, that's not all it's talked about in those sections. Those are just the highlights of that. But in this first section, you see uh, that God shows them how to remove sin. It's through the blood sacrifice of the innocent um, animal from the herd or from the flock. And then in the second section, how to re retain uh, fellowship with God, how to maintain uh, a right relationship with God as his people, and the instructions God gave to Israel during that time. Now today we come to the book of Numbers, which again is, um, covers a period of time, and yet there's very little narrative in the book of Numbers, but we are told through different <clears throat> places in the book of Numbers the time frame. This picks up basically a year after um, they left Israel. I'm sorry, left Egypt. And, uh, and so we've got three sections here in Numbers. Numbers is all about the wilderness wanderings. There's 40 years of going in circles in the wilderness. This is the book that covers that time frame. And so you've got the beginning, you've got the old generation. These are the people that came out of Egypt that experienced God's deliverance and, and the passing through the Red Sea, who received the Ten Commandments and the instructions and built the tabernacle. This first nine, actually chapter 10 to about verse 9, um, we see the old generation, and God is numbering them. And he's organizing them. He organizes them not only by numbering them, but in each tribe. And he organizes and tells them where that tribe is to set up camp around the tabernacle. He gives instructions to the Levites of, of which portion of the tabernacle they were responsible for. So that when God's presence lifted off the tabernacle and began moving, they all had a part. They, they gathered the stuff up and they followed God. This primarily takes place at Mount Sinai. Well, the, the second section is the primary section in that from time-wise. It happens over 38 years and a few months. Um, but these are the years of wandering. At uh, chapter 10, about verse 9 or 10, God's presence lifts off the tabernacle, and he begins moving from Mount Sinai. And he's moving toward the land of promise. So the people gather all their stuff up. But it isn't long before we start seeing them murmuring and complaining. They don't like the wilderness. They don't like the manna. We need water to drink. We don't want to just eat this manna. We want meat to eat. And God graciously supplies, uh, but they continue. And so we see the failure of the people to really trust God. And this takes place during the wilderness. And then, the last section is the new generation. God, uh, during that middle section, God sends the, ten, or the 12 spies into the land of promise. They were there for 40 days. They came back. Ten of the 12 uh, spies gave a bad report. They said, we can't do this. We need to go back to Egypt. Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness, to be killed by these giants in the land, and, and the fortified cities, and, and blah, 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 right? But Jacob, um, Joseph, uh, yeah, Joshua and uh, Caleb were the only other spies who said, no, we can do this. Now, with God's help, we can do this. And because of their disobedience and their um, disbelief in God, God said, okay, I'm going to make you wander in the wilderness one year for every day the spies were in the land. So for 40 years, you're going to wander because you didn't believe me. And then they said, oh, we believe you, God. We'll go fight now. And God says, oh, I'm not going with you. I made my decision. They go and they get defeated. And so they walk around in circles in the wilderness until that entire generation, everyone who was 20 years old and older of the men that left Egypt died in the wilderness. And a new generation was raised up. And that's what we see in this last section. The reorganizing of the people. God has them numbered again by tribes. <clears throat> there on the plains of Moab, just 
uh, east of the Jordan River um, before they crossed into the Promised Land. So that's the, the book uh, kind of in a, um, in a nutshell, if you will. And I hate to use that because they say if you can go in a nutshell, that's where it belongs, but that's not true of uh, the Scripture, of course. But, um, so let me, let me read for you a few portions from, again, the Talk Through the Bible, Bruce Wilkinson and Kenneth Bella's book, regarding this book, just to help us get, again, a better, um, some key things here. It says the, the book of Numbers is the book of wanderings. It takes its name from the two numberings of Israel, the, the beginning of the book and toward the end of the book, God numbers the people. And sometimes we wonder, why in the world we call it numbers? It's because of the numbering um, within the book. Uh, most of the book describes Israel's experiences as they wander in the wilderness lesson of numbers is clear. While it may be necessary to pass through wilderness experiences, one does not have to live there. For Israel, an 11-day journey became a 40-year agony. It only took 11 days for these 2 million people or so to move from Mount Sinai to where they were. Even that many people carrying all that they had. Only 11-day journey. That's all it was supposed to take. Because of disobedience, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. They say this, the theme of numbers is the consequence of unbelief, of disbelief and disobedience to a holy God. The Lord disciplined his people, by rem uh, but remained faithful to his covenant promises in spite of their fickleness. Numbers displays the patience, holiness, justice, mercy, and sovereignty of God toward his people. It teaches that there are no shortcuts to his blessing. He uses trials and tests for specific purposes. And then the survey they give is this. Israel as a nation in its infancy at the outset of this book, only 13 months after the exodus from Egypt, in Numbers, the book of divine discipline, it becomes necessary for the nation to go through the painful process of testing and maturation. God must teach his people the consequences of irresponsible decisions. The 40 years of wilderness experience transforms them from a rabble of ex-slaves into a nation ready to take the promised land. Numbers begins with the old generation, moves through this tragic transitional period, and then ends with a new generation at the doorway of the land of Canaan. That first section, the generation that witnessed God's miraculous acts of deliverance and preservation receives further direction from God while they are still at the foot of Mount Sinai. God's instructions are very explicit, reaching every aspect of their lives. He's the author of order, not confusion. And this is, the, this is seen in the way that he organizes the people around the tabernacle, turning from outward conditions of the camp to the inward conditions um, of the, the Levites and the tabernacle. Numbers describes the spiritual preparation of people. And in the middle section, Israel follows God step by step until Canaan is in sight. Then in a cru crucial moment at Kadesh, they draw back in unbelief. Their murmurings had already become incessant. But their unbelief, after sending out the 12 spies at Kadesh Barnea, is something God will not tolerate. Their rebellion at Kadesh marks the pivotal point of the book. The generation of the Exodus will not be the generation of the conquest. Unbelief brings discipline and hinders God's blessing. Hear that. Unbelief brings discipline and hinders God's blessing. The old generation is doomed to literally kill time for 40 years of wilderness wanderings, one year for every day they spent as the 12 spies in inspecting the land. They are judged by disinheritance and death as, they journey, as their journey changes from one anticip of anticipation to one of meaninglessness. Only Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who believed God, enter Canaan. Almost nothing is recorded about these transitional years. It's just... Wow. Our last section. When the... When the transition to the new generation is complete, the people move to the plains of Moab, directly east of the promised land. Before they can enter the land, they must wait till all is ready. Here they receive new instructions. A new census is taken. Joshua is appointed as Moses' successor. And some of the people even settle there 
in the Transjordan area. Numbers records two generations, two numberings, two journeyings, and two sets of instructions. It illustrates both the kindness and severity of God and teaches that God's people can move forward only as they trust and depend on God. This is the book of Numbers. Well, again, I said there, there isn't a lot of narrative information, but there is a little bit. And one of those teaches us a critical, critical story that Jesus refers to in John chapter 3. It's found here in Numbers 21. And it's a story about, again, the disobedience of the people, God's judgment upon their disobedience, their confession, and God's provision. It's a, a story that pictures the gospel. Let me read for you Numbers chapter 21. I'm going to start with verse 1, though we're going to focus on 5 through 9. But just to give us a little bit more context. This is toward the end of those 40 years. It says, when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, the Negev is the southern portion uh, of Israel down, toward, down near the Mount Sinai. And he heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, and he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if thou would indeed deliver this people into my hand, I will utterly destroy their city. And the Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and then they utterly destroyed them in their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah, which means devoted to destruction. Verse 4, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. And the Lord sent fiery or venomous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord, and you intercede with the Lord, that we may remove the serpents, that he, that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. This story takes place in kind of four segments. We see, first of all, verse 5, the, Lord's uh, the, 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 the people's complaint. The people's complaint. They complained about the manna. They complained and became impatient with the journey. The journey was a consequence of their disobedience at Kadesh Barnea. It's interesting when this takes place. It's after a great victory. After the Canaanites came and <clears throat> uh, attacked them, and they said, God, if you give us, if you will give us victory over them, we'll destroy their cities. We'll and God gave them victory, a great victory. On the heels of that great victory, they're impatient and they're complaining. Have you ever noticed in your life that temptation often comes on the heels of some... Spiritual experience or, or some high that you have, something that you were able to be a part of that God did. <clears throat> Why would that be? 
Well, it would seem like the opposite, that if, we're, if we've seen God work, we've experienced something God has done, we've been part of that, and, and we're excited about that, that, that we would be able to kind of fly above temptation. It seems to get us in those moments. Well, I think Paul gives us some insight in this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, he actually refers to this incident. He starts out in verse 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea <coughs> and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us, <clears throat> that we should not crave evil things as they also craved, and do not be idolaters as some of them were. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. <clears throat> Verse 9, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpent. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We're not just gathering information about these books of the Bible. We're not just filling our heads with knowledge and, and instruction. We are learning from them about who God is, how God deals with his people, and what happens when his people disobey. He says this then, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. For no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with temptation will provide a way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That, to me, is a huge reason why we give in to temptation after we experience a spiritual uh, high, if you will. We think we have something to do with it. We get proud and we get arrogant about these things. And the enemy is waiting for an opportunity. He's patient. He, he sees as God is working and he knows he cannot, he cannot stop God from working through people who are yielded to him. And so he'll step back and and then that happens, and then he'll wait, and he'll watch to see, is there, a, is there an opening? Is there some pride? Is there some confidence in self after something like that happens in our life? And I know the crazy things that pop into my head after I see God do something really cool in somebody's life. And I may have been part of an instrument God used to do that. And then I start thinking, huh, huh, it only makes sense. Pretty good at that stuff. I mean, after all, I've been doing this for 28 years. I, I got experience. I, I know what I'm doing. I, and then you start thinking that you had something to do with all this. Oh, and the enemy loves that. He begins to get his claws in. Yeah. You don't need to spend as much time praying. You don't need to keep reading God's Word. I mean, you've been preaching for 20 years. You, you know, you know the Bible. 
all these kind of things begin to, and then it begins to move further and further away. It happened to any of us. It happened to all of us, just as it did with Israel. After a great victory. And secondly, they were tired of God's provision. They were tired of God's provision. God had provided manna all those years, without fail, day after day after day. God provided their daily bread. They could not go. They could not grow anything in the wilderness. God provided water in the desert. Moses says in Deuteronomy, their, their sandals didn't wear out. Forty years of walking in the sand, hot sand, their sandals didn't wear out. You show me somebody who can make a sandal like that today. Not even Nike, sorry, Nike. They got tired of God's provision. Warren Wiersbe says this, the word of God is the bread of heaven that God's people must feed on daily if they're going to succeed in this pilgrim's journey. The way we treat his word at the beginning of each day reveals whether or not we are yielded to him and want to obey him. To enter a new day without first feeding on the heavenly manna is to invite disappointment and defeat. You ever get tired of reading God's word? You ever think, well, I would rather read other people who talk about God's Word. And there's nothing wrong with Christian books. But make no mistake, Christian authors and the books they write are the hors d'oeuvres that whet our appetite for the main meal. We have got to be in the Word of God. This is a living book. This speaks to us. This encourages us. This feeds our soul the nourishment that we need today. And just as the manna, it were to take enough for today, we need our daily bread. We need our daily provision of God's Word. And that's why our, our challenge is such an important challenge because sometimes we need to encourage each other. And help each other along in that. Now, for, for those of us who, who know the, the incredible value and experience, the importance of God speaking to us on a daily basis, and again, I'm, everyone misses a day here and there. I, again, I don't beat ourselves up about that, but you, we know the incredible um, value of God's Word speaking to our lives every day. Imagine people out there who, who don't have an understanding of that. They might have a Bible, but they don't open it. And that's not a condemnation on people. That's just the reality of where people are. They don't know. And so we need to invite them them as we understand the value of God's Word. They were complaining. They were tired of God's provision. Second, we see the Lord's punishment, verse 6. The Lord sent the serpents, verse 6, and the Lord sent fiery serpents, venomous snakes among the people. 
He didn't just allow the serpents to come. He sent them. This is God doing this. God brings difficulty into our lives. Sometimes as a discipline for sin. Not always. Not every time we have difficulty is it God saying, you got sin in your life. But it's always to strengthen our faith. Sometimes, most of the time we know, right? If, if God's bringing discipline into our life because there's something in our life that we're unwilling to bring before Him in confession, unwilling to walk in repentance of, and it's something that's in our life, we, we know that, that we're not where we should be. Most of the time. But even if we don't, and we think, okay, this is happening, maybe God's trying to tell me there's something going on. Then we go to God and we say, Lord, what is it you want me to, to see? Is there something in my life I need to confess to you? Do you know that God is a good father? How cruel would it be as a father if I, if I took one of my children and I disciplined them and they say, well, what do I do? Nah, I'm not going to tell you. Well, how do I, how do I know, you know to, to stop doing it? Well, you'll have to figure it out. No, if I bring discipline, I want to explain, this is what you did. This is where you crossed the line. This is where you became disobedient or disrespectful or, or you did this. And so therefore, this is the discipline. God is going to show it to us. And if there's nothing there, then we say, okay, God, how do you want to strengthen my faith? Maybe, maybe I'm walking through this because somebody in my life is not where they should be. And God's brought discipline in their life and that has affected me because I love them and because I'm in a relationship with them and because the consequences have impacted me as well. But even in that, God may be saying, I want you to trust me in this. And so it's always about strengthening our faith. It was for them. They're wandering around for years and years and years aimlessly. <laughs> Waiting for what? Waiting to die. Here we have a just God dealing out just consequences for sin. That's what was going on. He's completely right and just to bring about this consequence. And what was the consequence? Well, when they got bit, they died. Death is the consequence of sin. Death is the consequence of sin. It's always been that way from the garden when Adam and Eve first sinned. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. Death means separation. When Adam and Eve <coughs> disobeyed God's direct command, God kicked them out of the garden. There was a separation. They experienced, for the first time, spiritual death. They would eventually experience physical death. Both are the consequence of sin. Spiritual death is the separation of our soul from God. Physical death is the separation of our soul from our body. And then there's eternal death which is when we physically die in a condition of spiritual death. We move into eternal death, which means our soul is separated forever from God. 
death is the consequence of sin. Clearly, God was communicating that to the people. God was communicating it as an example for us today, as Paul says in verse Corinthians 12. Third, we see the people's confession. <laughs> after the fiery serpents, after they're starting to see people die, they say, we've sinned. Because we've spoken against God and against you, Moses. We get it. We've sinned. Would you pray for us? Moses was the mediator between the people and God. And that's what he did. He prayed for them. We go to our mediator and acknowledge our sin. Our mediator is Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. We go to him. We confess our sin. Again, most of the time we know. We know it before God brings the discipline. But so often we just keep going in and thinking, well, maybe God understands. Maybe God won't deal with it. Maybe God is going to overlook this. He does for a time. As we sure know, as we find in the book of Numbers, your sins will find you out. They found that out. So we confess, Lord, I've done this. I've been doing this. Right? They were specific. They didn't just say, I sinned. We spoke against you. We have complained. Acknowledge their sin. But notice, they said, would you pray for us that he would remove the serpents? We want him to take the, the pain away. God didn't do that. Serpents stayed there. We want God to pain, remove the pain. Right? We want the circumstances changed. We want the problem solved. God sometimes doesn't do that. Oftentimes he leaves the physical consequences of our actions as a constant reminder. The drunk driver who kills somebody, who repents and confesses his sin, the person he killed does not come back alive. There are physical consequences that remain but what he does do is he provides a way out of the spiritual consequences. They're removed. And so that's where we find the Lord's provision here, the fourth section. God's response to Moses' prayer on behalf of the people is this, verse 8, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, on a pole, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, right? He didn't remove the serpents. They still were getting bitten. Whoever looks at it will live. And then verse 9 tells us Moses obeyed exactly what God said. Because you can even look, compare it, the, the phrases, they're almost identical. So Moses made a bronze serpent. He said, make a fiery serpent. Moses made a bronze serpent. Set it on a standard. He set it on a standard. When it comes about that everyone is bitten, he says, and it came about that if a certain bitten man looked at it, he lived. God did what he said he would do, and Moses obeyed what God told him to do. So what we have here is, first of all, the type of Christ. A type. A type is something in the Old Testament that is a picture of what is revealed in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. 
Both the manna and the bronze serpent are types of Christ. In fact, in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, he writes this, if ever there were a less expected pairing of types, it would be this. The manna was an altogether gracious gift of God, which the people turned against with stomach revulsion. The snakes were an instrument of God's judgment because of the people's ingratitude and rebellious spirits. It was a metal copy of just that snake that became the means for their deliverance. The bread is a picture of Jesus as the bread of heaven. He's the proper nourisher of his people, and he does so through his word. The bronze snake is a picture of Jesus who became sin for us as he hung on that awful tree. The manna had to be eaten. The snake had to be seen. The commands of Scripture are for our doing. The manna was no good if it was left to rot. The metal snake would not avail if none looked at it. The manna and the snake are twin aspects of the grace of God. The pain wasn't removed. When they got bit, the venom began to work through their body, and it was painful. But the consequence is death was taken care of. They didn't die. If they looked. It's an act of faith. They had to look to it. God provided. But they had to look. If he had removed the serpents, they go on as usual. Just one more thing that is in the rearview mirror. But the serpents remained. And they were bitten. And they had to look by faith to what God had provided. Now imagine for a moment with me. You're in the camp of Israel. You've seen people dying all over the place because of these snake bites. Moses comes out of his out of his uh, uh, his tent, and he has this this pole with this bronze snake on it. He's saying, "Moses, is this a joke? What are you doing?" And he says, "God told me to make this, and I put it here in the camp, and everyone who gets bitten by these." serpents is to look to this and you won't die. Moses, are you off your rocker? <laughs> How does looking at a pole with a metal snake on it going to save me from this venom going through my body? I'm a common sense person, Moses. That ain't make any sense. That's what God said. And then all of a sudden, people stopped dying. Okay. That's a coincidence, maybe. Then you get bit. Your family's like, just look to the serpent. Just look at it. You won't die. Say, well, I don't believe it. What about everybody else that, that did that and they're living? Just coincidence. You're going to die. Maybe. I'll take my chances. Everyone's telling you, come on, all you got to do is look at it. All you got to do is look up and you will live. It may not make complete sense that how looking at a hole with a snake on it is going to save you. But it did. It may not answer every intellectual question. But it was God's provision. And he is teaching them faith. Believe me at my word. The fact of the matter is we've all been bitten. By the serpent of sin. The Bible is very clear. All have sinned and come short of God's perfect standard. God has made a provision. His son Jesus, who came to earth 
to take our sin off of us and put it on Himself. In fact, we're told in 2 Corinthians 5 that, that God took our sin off of us, put it on His Son, who was the perfect sacrifice. And we, we looked at last week. And He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. When we look to Christ in faith, believing that what He did there was enough to satisfy the righteous and just wrath of God against sin, my sin and your sin, when we look to Him who was lifted up on the cross, trusting in Him for our salvation, then the Bible tells us we're forgiven of the consequence, spiritual consequence of sin. We're still going to die physically unless the Lord returns before then. But Jesus said at the grave of Lazarus to Martha, his sister, who was weeping, who was saying, if you should have you come earlier, if you'd have been here, you wouldn't have died. And he said, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Even if you die physically, you're going to live spiritually. When you believe in me. When you look to me. Jesus, in John chapter 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, a religious leader who knew the Old Testament, he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, referring to himself, be lifted up. And whoever believes may have in him eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And whoever believes in him shall live, or shall not die, but have everlasting life. It's the gospel. It's portrayed for us in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled that. And just as they looked to the serpent by faith and lived, so we must look to Christ by faith and live. We may not answer all of our intellectual questions. Nonetheless, it's the truth. Revealed in the Holy Bible, God's Word to us. And when we do that, we live. For those of us who have experienced that and have been walking with the Lord, this truth should cause us to rejoice in a simplistic message. We don't have to earn this. We didn't have to earn it before we came to Him, and we don't have to earn it after. We don't live our lives... Uh, for Christ, give our money in the offering and attend church regularly and, and behave ourselves so that we can somehow prove to God we are worthy of salvation. We live our life the way we live our life out of gratitude to God for what He's done for us. We want to live this way. We want to give back to God because God gave His life for us through Christ. For those who haven't come to that place yet, it's simply this. Look up and live. Look to Christ. He is God's salvation. He is God's provision. You receive forgiveness. New life in Christ. And begin a journey of walking with God. And if that's the case today, whether here or online, I would encourage you Find somebody that you can begin studying the Bible with so that they can show you from God's Word what it looks like to walk out of faith. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious Father, gracious Father, we thank you. <laughs> Lord, as we look at this story, we think to ourselves, why didn't you just kill them all in the, in the wilderness? They were so disobedient grumbling and complaining so many times. But you, in your patience 
In your grace, you provided a way out. But they had to look. They had to trust you. Lord, we, we, don't, we don't deserve your forgiveness. We don't deserve your favor on us. But it is your grace that is provided for us. For that we say thank you. Lord, we look. We look up. And because of that faith of looking up, we have life. Life eternal. Lord, I pray for that individual right now whose, maybe whose heart is pounding a little bit more. Who's thinking, this is, I need something like this. Can I really believe this? Can I really trust the Lord? Is it that simplistic? Has Christ really done it all for me? Can I trust Him? with my eternity. God, I pray the Holy Spirit will help them understand and convince them of that. And Lord, by faith we rejoice that the angels of heaven are somebody that is entering into a relationship with Christ even now. Oh Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for a story that only covers a few verses in the Old Testament but so clearly pictures for us the gospel message. Be at work, Lord. For Jesus' sake, in your name we pray. Amen.